Welcome to Kidney Commute, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation, driven by the interprofessional team with emphasis on the patient voice. In each episode, we will incorporate the perspectives of the different members of the kidney team as well as the patient. Join our huddle on all things kidney health and allow new perspectives to inspire collaboration in your practice. Eligible listeners can earn credit along the way. The Kidney Commute, a continuing education podcast planned by the team for the team. Hello and welcome to the Kidney Commute, an NKF podcast. My name is Osama El Shami, a nephrologist at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and I'll be your host for today's discussion. Today, we will be discussing a topic that is important for all of our kidney patients, protein intake in the diet. It's a question that comes up a lot and something that can be confusing for both our patients and providers. Recommendations change based on whether patients are CKD, dialysis, or transplant. Joining me today is an esteemed group of panelists who I'll now ask to introduce themselves. Hello, my name is Melanie Betts and I am a registered dietitian at the University of Chicago and I am certified in renal nutrition. Hi, I'm Dwayne Clayton. I am a dialysis patient. I was on hemo for a total of 11 years. I had a transplant for seven and I'm two months into PD. Hi, my name is Akila King. I am a project manager at the American College of Surgeons, but previously I was a nephrology social worker and senior research analyst at the University of Chicago. Hi, I'm Tammy Poma. I'm a nephrology nurse practitioner. I work mainly with the hemodialysis population, and I was also a hemodialysis patient myself, and I've had a kidney transplant for 22 years. Hello, my name is Dr. Brian Tucker. I am an assistant professor at Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, I'm part of the nephrology faculty there. Welcome all. Happy to have you on board for this journey on this podcast. I guess it's uh, only right to start with the most basic question, uh, Melanie. What is protein and how do we measure it? Great question. So um, so make sure we can all be talking about protein the same way. Um, protein is one of the three macronutrients that we need, we all need as part of our diets. Um, there's protein, carbohydrate, and fat. Um, and so you find protein in lots of different types of foods. Of course, the majority of the protein that we eat tends to come from meat or fish or poultry, right? That tends to be majority of the protein in our diet, but you'll also find smaller amounts of protein in things like grains and vegetables as well. That's, that's great and kind of help, helps us set a, you know, foundation for today's discussion. Now with that, I'd like to loop in Dwayne. Dwayne, as a patient, what are some of the things your kidney health team did to help you understand protein in the diet and what it is that you need to do? I was given sample examples of foods that were high in protein. I was given charts that showed foods that were high in proteins. I would show what a proper serving of protein would look like. And I was also show, shown how to read labels to know what to look for when looking for foods that were high in protein, but also low in, I'll just say maybe like phosphorus, for instance. 
Got so. it. It's a good summary and understanding. I'm assuming you're referring mainly during the years when you were on dialysis, right? When the protein was a little bit lower and they were trying to bring it up. Exactly. Also, I was given protein bars, protein um, drinks, you know, just different things to get it up. And also even like with the labs so that I could have a better understanding, you know, it was explained to me what a um, healthy range was, what a too high of a range was. So, you know, I kind of learned those things as well. Yeah. Now, speaking of too high of a range, we hear a lot about protein restriction in patients with chronic kidney disease. Brian, why can too much protein be bad for the kidneys? High protein uh, can cause intraglomerular hypertension, which results in glomerular hyperfiltration and glomerular injury. Some proteins may produce more acid than others. This increases ammoniogenesis and overall uh, increases the work of the kidney, creating more acidemic uh, environment. Uh, increased ammoniogenesis is also associated with more tubulo-interstitial injury, which may be attenuated with a low-protein diet. Now, now, that being said, Melanie, why is there a protein restriction in CKD patients, but not in dialysis patients? Yeah, the recommendations for protein definitely change quite significantly from um, someone who has CKD stage three through five through, um, to someone who has to start dialysis. And the primary reason for limiting protein in chronic kidney disease is because we see a slower progression of kidney disease for people who are on a lower protein diet or for people who eat less protein. And so if you are not on dialysis, that's kind of why we tend to restrict protein. However, when someone starts dialysis, things change nutritionally and metabolically quite a bit. And people who are on dialysis actually have higher than average protein needs, primarily just because the process of dialysis itself tends to break down a lot of the protein in our blood. And so patients oftentimes need to eat extra protein to sort of make up for that lost protein as part of the dialysis procedure. Thanks for that explanation. Now, does the same apply for our kidney transplant patients? Do they also need to watch their protein intake? That is a great recommendation. And there's actually no formal recommendation for protein for dialysis patients. However, I think someone who has a kidney transplant does still technically have chronic kidney disease. And so I think it certainly makes sense to not just not talk about it. I do think it's still an important topic, but likely right after transplant, you, you kind of have to base protein needs based off of GFR. So if someone's GFR is 70, then we don't need to go on a super low protein diet, but we do probably want to avoid very high protein loads. If GFR is lower, then we might want to restrict that protein a little bit more. So it's very individualized to each patient. I'm glad you throw in some numbers about the GFR because that takes me nicely to my next question for Tammy. Tammy, are there some general societal guidelines that we should know when counseling our patients about protein intake in their diet? Yes, there are. There are guidelines put out by KDGO or Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes. And they're a global organization that has developed evidence-based clinical practice guidelines for people in kidney disease. And what they recommend for protein intake in patients with chronic kidney disease in a lower GFR of around 30, they recommend a protein intake of about 0.8 grams per kilo per day 
in adults with diabetes and without diabetes. So they don't really separate the diabetic from the non-diabetic. And they also encourage appropriate education. They also suggest avoiding high protein intake, which would be above 40 grams per kilos per day in adults with CKD at risk for progression. However, I feel that most people in the United States follow the National Kidney Foundation Disease Outcome Quality Initiative Clinical Practice Guidelines for Chronic Kidney Disease and Protein Intake. So these were last updated recently, more recent than the KDGO guidelines in 2020. And what their newer guidelines recommend is a low protein diet, which would be 0 0.5 to 0.6 grams per kilo per day. Also a very low protein diet, which is different than the other guidelines, which would be approximately 0 0.2 to 0 0.4 grams of dietary protein per kilo of body weight with the addition of keto acid or amino acid analogs to meet the protein requirements. People might say, what's a keto acid analog? It's a supplement. It's a nitrogen-free essential amino acid. Now that's for patients not on dialysis and not with diabetes. Now for people who are CKD not on dialysis and with diabetes, they recommend a little bit more protein, 0 0.6 to 0 0.8 grams per kilo for body weight. That's a, for in a 60 kilo person, that's about 48 grams of protein compared to the same 60 kilo person and the very low protein, that would be like 24 grams of protein. In our Western diets, we tend to eat a lot more than that. And then they also stratify patients who are on hemodialysis, PD patients who are without diabetes. They recommend one to 1.2 grams per kilo body weight per day, which is the equivalent of about 72 grams of protein in a 60 kilo person. And again, again, same with the diabetes, it's about the same. So once someone's on dialysis with or without diabetes, it's encouraged to eat more protein. There is a strong albumin, especially in the dialysis population, is a strong predictor of good outcomes. Thanks for that summary, Tammy. It's very helpful, I think, for us all to keep in mind and be mindful of the distinction between our dialysis patients, non-dialysis patients, diabetics, non-diabetics, and know that there are some differences depending on what guidelines we are following. Now, that being said, Melanie, is there anything that you think that we as fellow providers should know when reading through these guidelines to promote and advance the health of our patients? Yeah, I think probably the most important thing to remember for both patients and for healthcare providers is that there is no one single one size fits all kidney diet. I really love the summary that Tammy just gave us and the new guidelines that came out in 2020 that give us more individual recommendations based on the stage of kidney disease. Also, I love that distinction with people who have diabetes because if you reduce protein, you have to increase those other two macronutrients. So that tends to be a higher carb diet, which is fine for a lot of people, but maybe not if you have uh, diabetes. And so I think it's really, really important to take each person, look at their stage of kidney disease, look at their other macronutrient levels, um, electrolyte levels, also looking to see if there's any concern or cause to be concerned for malnutrition, um, because then a low protein diet may not be appropriate. 
Um, and I think it's really, really important to kind of look at the whole person and incorporate these guidelines, but not kind of use them as this black and white um, recommendation because everyone is different. Absolutely. Now, we've talked a lot about restrictions and recommendations. This has to be a lot for our patients to adjust to. Akila, what are some of the issues our patients face when trying to adhere to these dietary recommendations? And what are some ways that the kidney health team can provide support to them? Yeah, so for that two-part question, um, addressing the social determinants of health, just to be understanding to what our kidney patients are facing. So food insecurity comes up. When I think of that question um, and answering that, food insecurity, so that can look like reduced food intake or rationing meals so that it can last for longer periods of time. Um, we also want to be considerate to the limited access to grocery stores or um, to markets that are in lower income neighborhoods and, provi and provide groceries, um, but they might be of lower quality. We also want to consider accessibility, physical accessibility, whether that's modes of transportation or disabilities that our patients have, um, because this is a chronic disease, we know that they are dealing with a lot of comorbidities. And then we also wanna consider neighborhood conditions as well. Um, and then another strong piece to consider is their health literacy level. So where is their level of understanding and engagement as well. Um, and we want to make the expectations realistic when it comes to understanding and then encouraging them to make these changes and also empowering them to be the driver in their health and unloading and unpacking this information because it is a lot. So some ways that the health team can provide support is really empowering and letting the patient drive these decisions. And then another way that we can provide support is to cater to different learning styles. So while education, um, some people like to receive things auditory, so verbal conversation. Some, it might help for them to learn via handouts uh, and explaining those. And then Melanie, I've also heard her mention that using food models is a good example too. So making sure that the education is being provided in many ways, and then the expectations when it comes to implementing these changes are very realistic and also align with the patient's lifestyle. Absolutely, and the kind of going through these changes that requires our patients to undergo behavioral changes. Now, Brian, you have a master's in nutrition as well. And I remember you telling me that in one of the classes that you took, you had to do behavior change. What was that experience like? And what advice do you have for our patients? A behavior change is actually quite difficult. Even a single behavior change could involve many downstream uh, life adjustments to do it. So when reviewing possible behavior change modifications for the patient, I would recommend going slow, not overwhelming the patient with, with all these recommendations. Uh, so in general, I'd recommend to start with one or two small dietary changes. Every visit, continue adjusting this based on patient progress to see how the patient's doing. But in summary, recommend specific things and go slow while doing it. Absolutely. That's always the best way to, uh, to achieve success, right? Slow, slow and steady wins the race. <laughs> now, Melanie, we hear a lot about the different types of protein. 
right? What are they and is one better than the other? Yeah, there's a lot of talk these days in the kidney world about uh, animal protein versus plant protein. And there's a lot of data to support the notion that plant proteins are a whole lot easier on your kidneys, if you will, than animal proteins. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that plant proteins tend to create much more, uh, generate much less acid during metabolism than animal proteins. Brian did a great job earlier talking about why a high protein diet is so difficult on the kidneys. And a lot of that has to do with acid production. And so plant proteins produce really kind of net zero or sometimes even a negative acid load, whereas animal proteins tend to have a very large acid load. And so that is kind of the, the major difference and why we are seeing this big shift in the nephrology community to promoting more plant proteins these days. Uh, Melanie, I had a question. As far as a protein absorption, does one protein absorb better than the other as far as plant-based and animal-based? That's a really great, great question, uh, Dwayne. Um, and not, not really. There is generally plant and animal proteins are absorbed at the same rate. I will say that animal proteins tend to have a lot more protein in them per serving than plant proteins. So it's maybe not so much that plant proteins aren't absorbed as well, but there is just less protein in them per serving. Now, I know we're focusing on protein specifically, and we hear a lot that beans are a good plant-based source of protein, but patients are often warned about the high potassium and phosphorus that is in beans. Those are two things that I know we tell patients to limit. How do we go about balancing between these two things when it comes to beans? That is a wonderful question. One of my favorites. I'm so glad you asked it. For phosphorus, um, we know that phosphorus that occurs naturally in plant foods like whole grains and nuts and seeds and lentils and beans is not very well absorbed. Less than half of the phosphorus that occurs in, that is in these foods is absorbed into our bodies. And so we generally aren't too worried about it. On the flip side, phosphorus that occurs in meat and dairy is absorbed somewhere between 80 to 90%. And phosphorus that is added to our foods, so phosphorus that we find in fast foods and processed foods and um, all of those, those uh, synthetic phosphorus additives are generally 100% absorbed. And so really for, for most people, if we can just get rid of that synthetic artificial phosphorus, reduce the animal protein intake, there is plenty of room for those wonderful, healthy plant-based sources of protein um, just because that phosphorus isn't absorbed. And in terms of potassium, that one is a little bit more tricky. I always like to say that potassium is not a concern unless blood levels of potassium are elevated. And also sort of acknowledging that there is a whole lot of potassium in animal proteins as well. A piece of chicken or fish or beef has a lot of potassium. And oftentimes, unfortunately, animal products often have potassium additives in them as well. Oftentimes they're not uh, identifiable on the package. And so we, we find that in our food supply in general, these animal proteins just have a lot of extra potassium in them. When I am working with someone who is trying to work on a more plant-based diet and they are having potassium issues, I really, really stress the importance of using these plant proteins in place of animal proteins at meals. Because if you have, say, pork and beans, then yeah, that probably is a bit too much potassium and probably too much protein as well. But if you're using beans instead of the pork at that meal or whatever meat that it is, um, the potassium and phosphorus definitely do kind of tend to even out in the end. 
a lot of our patients come from different racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic backgrounds. Now, Akila, are there different factors and disparities that the health team should be aware of when talking to patients about their diet? Absolutely. I think um, all those that you just mentioned, different ethnic backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, even so socioeconomic neighborhoods um, are all things that should be up for consideration um, from cultural cultural perspective as well. Bringing that to the forefront and actually using it to the advantage of here's, here's what we see, here's what we know that African-Americans in addition to Hispanic and Latinos and American Indians are disproportionately faced with kidney disease and kidney failure. And so with that information, how can we be of service? How can we delay progression of the disease? And how can we also um, acknowledge that the neighborhoods that affect the patients that we typically see understanding that there are some financial limitations as well. How can we be of resource? And so I would bring consideration to food pantries. I know that there are hospitals that start food pantries to provide patients. And then there are also other organizations as well. And then there are some grants that you can apply for for different grocers, such as Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, um, I believe Albertsons, which covers a lot <laughs> of different grocery stores, um, also provide resources um, that we can share with our patients, whether it's in the form of a gift card to kind of help bridge some of those gaps. But I think being aware of our biases, being aware of the disparities that minority populations face in America specifically, and bringing that to the forefront will really assist us in providing quality care to our patients and empowering them and encouraging them to have more of a front seat approach in their health. You know, building on that then, with a team approach in mind, and in order to help support our patients in a responsible manner, Melanie, do you have two or three things that you would recommend that we advise our patients when they approach us? Of course, it is really important to individualize advice to every, every patient that you see. But I think the three things that I tend to bring up most often when I'm working with patients are, is um, first of all, limiting processed meats. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize that deli turkey is a processed meat along with bacon and sausage and Polish and corned beef and all that good stuff. So I think the three things is probably trying to stay away from those processed meats and swapping out some fresh meats and maybe even those plant proteins, generally trying to eat more fruits and vegetables to have that wonderful benefit benefits on blood pressure and reducing acid load. And also just generally trying to limit the other foods that are high in sodium. Um, I think those are three, three good messages for probably all of our patients with kidney disease to hear. That's great advice because, you know, I know I'm not the only one who patients approach, you know, with questions about their diet and protein in, in specific. So, no, that's very helpful. Now, finally, I'd like to post this question to you all. As a team, what do you believe is our role in terms of collaboration in delivering patient-centered care in an efficient and effective manner? And I'm, I'm going to go around and you know, uh, ask, ask you guys kind of one by one what your thoughts about that is. So 
one thing as a nephrologist uh, is important to uh, be aware of is just the fact to bring it up and think about it. I know when we see a patient in the clinic, there's often so many things we need to get through, so many CKD related problems that we have to talk about that nutrition may not be at the top of the list, but it is important. It is one way we can reduce CKD progression and just thinking about it, remembering and bringing it up. Uh, it would be the first step. And, and of course, you don't have time to talk about it at every visit. It's very important to get your team members involved and, and, get, and get other people involved to help you talk about it. Yeah, I was going to add to that. Um, Ryan mentioned a lot of great things, but really using the strength of a team in different perspectives. Um, the team kind of represented how it is this talk right now with the dietitian, a social worker, the patient who's the most important nephrologist um, and APN so that different perspectives are being offered and it truly is a collaborative effort. I would say it's really important to make sure that you are meeting the patient where they're at. You can talk all about, you know, the, the wonderful benefits of plant proteins and low protein diets. You know, we can do that till we're blue in the face. But if a patient is not wanting to hear that or not ready to make those changes, that's not going to do anyone any good. And also, I think not expecting perfection and knowing focusing on moving in the right direction, right? So if someone is eating meat three times a day, if we can get them eating meat twice a day, that's wonderful, you know, and kind of just working with a patient and making those changes that are realistic, just like Brian was talking about earlier. Motivational interviewing techniques work perfectly <laughs> for that. So rolling with the resistance. And then when the patient come, comes around, if they ever come around, making sure that you're there to support them and listen to what they want to do first. I was just going to say, I totally agree with Melanie. Um, I think patient education is very important. And more importantly is that you definitely have to meet them where they are because you can't explain something to someone like me the same way. I mean, well, you can't explain someone older than I am or much older than I am and expect them to comprehend the way that I would. When I was on hemo my first nine years, I was probably one of the younger patients. And so a lot of the older patients reached out to me, kind of like to put things in layman terms for them because like because we all comprehend at different levels. And I think that is like one of the very important elements of trying to teach someone about protein is education. And that's what's nice about taking care of the dialysis population is we have to do care plans with the whole interdisciplinary team at the patient is at the center. And when we all communicate together like that, you find out things that you normally may not find out when you're rounding on your own. So communication and just working with the team are very beneficial for the patient outcome. These are all very important and great valid points for us all to keep in mind. And, you know, I think with that, I'd like to thank you all for your valuable contributions and your time in this discussion about protein in the diet of our kidney patients. I hope that our listeners find this content as helpful and insightful as I have. To sum up our discussion, I think some of the main take-home points and things that we uh, discussed today is kind of a basic understanding of what protein is ways to approach patients when it comes to education, whether it's using you know, graphics or help reading, uh, reading labels, understanding what 
is the reason behind restricting protein and why protein can be bad for the kidneys of patients who have chronic kidney disease, while bearing in mind that the recommendations do change, whether the patient is CKD, dialysis, transplant, and understanding that it is really is an individualized approach, which is why it's important that uh, the patient's understand that just because something applies to one patient doesn't mean that it will have to apply to them. And understanding the importance of meeting the patients where they're at, because at the end of the day, we're all the kidney team working and helping the patients navigate their journey through their kidney disease. Thank you all for tuning into another episode of the NKF Kidney Commute Interprofessional Podcast.